Well, everyone, we're continuing on in our sermon series in Exodus, titled Exodus Saved for Glory. And today we're looking at a really is a kind of a short story. It's in Exodus chapter 15, uh, verses 22 through 27. If you want to look in your pew Bible, it's on page 57. Today we will study a story wherein God's people are thirsty, but the only water that they have is bitter. It's undrinkable. In the Bible, thirst often has spiritual meaning. For instance, when the psalmist wrote, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or Psalm 61. O God, you are my God. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God made us to be thirsty physically and most certainly spiritually. In this story, it exposes just what we thirst after. Do we thirst for things of this world to satisfy? Or do we thirst for the living God who alone is able to make bitter waters sweet? Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes, I will put none of the, of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. It's short. It could easily have been left out of your scriptures, but it's there because you love us and you care for us. And you would have us grow and mature in our walk with Christ through these words. And so we pray that not, not, a, not a word would escape our hearts this morning. May you press deeply into us the truths that you would have us believe, we pray. Amen. In our passage, an entire nation, roughly 1.5 million people, plus all of their livestock, is without water. And, and when they finally find some, it's undrinkable. But then God makes the bitter water sweet. They fill their Nalgene bottles to the brim. And then God takes them someplace better. Almost perfect. Why? 
Why is this story in Scripture? Is it so we can learn the Boy Scout motto, be prepared? No. In our passage, God is trying to impress upon His people this truth. If you can learn to trust me with your physical thirst, then you can trust me with an even greater spiritual thirst. And we're all thirsty spiritually. The question is, where do you go to satisfy your thirst? Your thirst for meaning, for, for status, for popularity, for contentment, for financial security, your thirst for relationship and love. And how do you respond when difficult circumstances jeopardize everything? Difficult marriage or no marriage at all or a dead end job or hardship at school or health issues or financial hardship. In the wilderness of life, when you're unable to satisfy life's thirst, how do you respond? Are you like the Israelites, grumbling and complaining? The problem with the Israelites is that they did not yet know the Lord, that he was good and loving and trustworthy. And so they did not look to the Lord to satisfy the deep thirst of their lives. And because God loves them, though, he does something. He takes them to a physical watering hole that was bitter. It was undrinkable water. And he tests them. And he makes the bitter sweet. And then takes them to a perfect place to camp by springs and palm trees. Why? So that his people can know that God alone is the one who can take the bitter in life and make it sweet. And we need to know this too, don't we? If God can satisfy thirst for earthly water, which is our most basic need, then he can satisfy every and all thirst that we experience here on earth. So this passage helps us to see that, here's what we're going to see this morning, that that as a child of God, we are on a pilgrimage in which God tests his people so that we may rest in his promises. We're going to divide our time into three areas. We're going to look at the, the pilgrimage, the test, and then the rest. First, the, the pilgrimage. Very appropriate this time of year to be speaking of pilgrims, Thanksgiving just the other day. Uh, what we see here is that the Christian life is a pilgrimage on earth. What is a pilgrim? When we hear that word, we often think of, of stiff black caps and in uh, Thanksgiving Turkey. And certainly the pilgrims with a capital P were pilgrims with a small p. In the biblical sense, to be a pilgrim means that you live in this world as though another world is coming. Not that you ignore this world nor act as if nothing in this world matters, but you've come to see the futility of having this world satisfy all of your thirsts. A pilgrim in a Christian sense, then, is, is one who lives for God's glory in this world, knowing that fullness of joy to come is in the age to come. It's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Christian life is to be a pilgrimage. We see this in verse 22. They were just God just delivered them uh, from the hands of the Egyptians through a mighty act of parting the Red Sea. They left the Red Sea. Verse 22, Moses and the nation of Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. At least 1.5 million people in the desert and no water. 
Why? Why is God allowing this? Why is this happening? Because the people of God are pilgrims on this earth. Remember in chapter 14, uh, we learned that God could have brought them into the promised land by going through the Philistine territory, and it would have taken how long to get to the promised land? About two weeks. But the Philistines were there, and God knew that his people were not yet ready for battle. But it isn't just that the people of God aren't ready for battle. Something else is wrong, something far greater. What is it? They weren't prepared to be God's people. If God had picked his people up out of Egypt and then transferred them over into the promised land, they would be in the land, but they would live in the land more as Egyptians than really God's people, the nation of Israel, right? How so? Have you ever eaten tofu? Tofu is essentially flavorless, right? It takes on the flavor of whatever's around it. If you put tofu into seafood soup, tofu will taste like what? Seafood. My friends, okay, I know this might be a stretch. The Israelites are like tofu steeping in the Egyptian soup. They've been there for 400 years. The only thing that could press the Egyptian godlessness out of them would be if they steeped in the flavorless wilderness in God's presence for 40 years. God took them on a pilgrimage in the wilderness for their own good. And Christian, he does the same for you too, for your own good. Phil Riken makes this insightful observation. He says, going through the wilderness, listen, Going through the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. What is sanctification? It's kind of a big word, right? Sanctification is the lifelong process wherein God, by His grace, makes you more like Jesus as you put off sin and put on His righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine there's a, not a single person here, Christian or not, who does not want to be more Christ-like. Problem is, how does one become more Christ-like? We become more Christ-like when we suffer like Christ. What does this tell us? It tells us that we need to embrace our calling to be pilgrims. Christ embraced his calling to live for God's glory as a pilgrim on earth. So too we who belong to Christ, we must embrace our calling to be pilgrims, to be sojourners in this world. Instead of grumbling, maybe no longer see the wilderness is optional, but rather what? Necessary. We are pilgrims, sojourners in this broken world. Do, do you see life this way? Or are you still immature in your Christian walk? Are you looking for things in this world to, to satisfy your thirst? And are you complaining when God brings trials into your life? So the Christian life is a pilgrimage. Now for the testing. Here we see that the Christian life is a pilgrimage in which we are tested. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? God sends tests into his dearly loved people's lives. Well, my friends, a mature Christian actually welcomes God's testing in his or her life. Here's what Jesus' brother James wrote. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's fruit to be had when God tests his people. At the end of verse 25, the Lord says that he tested his people at Mara. God put his own dearly loved treasured people through tests. Why? Because he is good. Because he loves us. And because we need him to. Testing does a few good things for us. Testing refines us. And testing defines us. You know, the initial training to become a Navy SEAL refines the sailor who undergoes it. SEAL training is the hardest training in the world. Sailors who enter into this first phase of training are some of the toughest, strongest people in our military. But at the end of Hell Week, that's what they call it, where they only sleep for four hours, not a night, the whole week, and run over 200 miles. And each day, they physically train and are tested for 20 hours of training for the whole this this physical testing it is so rigorous that by the end of the week only 15 to 20 percent remain testing refines the one who endures it those in that training no doubt think this testing is far harder than I ever imagined do, do I really want to be a navy seal is this something that I really thirst for Testing has a way of changing you in the middle of it. It presses lesser wants and needs aside. Testing refines you, and this is a good thing. It also defines you. You know, prior to SEAL training, you were simply a sailor. (laughs) And then after it, you're a Navy SEAL, the best of the best of special operators on Earth. And when you're sent behind enemy lines in Afghanistan in freezing cold for nights on end with little food, you know that you will not just endure, you will succeed in your mission. How do you know? Because you've been defined by your prior testing. You know you can endure sleepless nights with little food in the freezing cold because you've endured far worse for far longer when you've been tested before. You're a Navy SEAL. You can do it. Testing refines you and it defines you so you can have confidence If you're a child of God, God tests you so that your thirsts become refined. Do I really thirst more for fancy vacations than I thirst for serving people in my community? Do I thirst more for Black Friday than for Good Friday? God tests you so that you may come to see how foolish it is to try to satisfy your earthly thirst with anything other than His heavenly springs. We see this happening to the nation of Israel in our passage. After walking for three days in the wilderness, they're running out of water. And can you imagine being there? You're so thirsty. It's been days and days. Your, your skins are, uh, your skin bottles are, are empty. The water's no longer there. And then finally, finally, someone up front shouts out, there's water, there's water. But then the word gets back to you. You can't be drunk. It's, it's bitter. Mara means bitter. They named the place Mara. It was a bitter place. And then what do they do? In verse 24, we read that the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, asking what shall we drink is not sinful. That's a great question, right? What was sinful was what? They're complaining. 
Grumbling is a sign of ungratefulness and self-centeredness and immaturity and insecurity. Instead of grumbling, they should have what? Cried out to God. They should have prayed to the one who just delivered them through the Red Sea. Yahweh, you rescued us through the Red Sea. Now, now can you provide water for us, please? Instead, they complained to Moses. What does Moses do? Now, if you've been with us for this series, you remember that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, being sanctified by God and prepared for the task at hand. Moses is now a mature believer. What does he do? He prays. He intercedes for God's people. In verse 25, we read that Moses cried to Yahweh. And God replied by what? Showing Moses a log. <laughs> That's kind of silly, isn't it? But thanks, God. We need water, but you give me, there's a log? I don't understand. That's kind of crazy. All right. None of you are perplexed by that. Okay. Just me. Once again. All right. So Moses throws the log into the water, and the water becomes sweet. God made the bitter water sweet. Hundreds of thousands of his people now had pure, sweet water to satisfy their thirst. Now, consider this. Pay attention. Consider this. Is this not grace upon grace? Tony Merida writes, What is amazing here is not just that God can do a miracle, making the water sweet, but check this out, but that he is willing to do it for these complainers. This is grace. God's grace is sweet. God's grace is sweet. If you don't, if, if, if God's grace isn't sweet, then you don't know God and you don't know his grace. God's grace is nothing if it's not sweet to us. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, a good question for us is, why did God do this? Think about it. God knew ahead of time that this water was undrinkable. God even knew that his people would grumble. He could have fixed the water problem before they arrived. <laughs> he could have made the water drinkable without them even knowing that there had been something wrong with it. So why did God do this? He did it for their good. He did it because they needed testing. So, so, so that they would be tested. And then they would see how far, far, how, how far short they are. So they would see their ever present need for God's ongoing grace in their lives. John Calvin wrote these words. Listen, here's what he said. He says, the Lord might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter water to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their own hearts. God is good to test His children so that we see in our own hearts what is really there. This is good for God to do this. The children of God are to endure testing from God as pilgrims on this earth so that we may see how bitter our lives are apart from God. 
apart from His mercy and His grace and His even His plans and His commandments. That's what verses 25 and 26 are about. In verse 25, God demonstrates His love and presence and power in their lives when He, when he says, basically, walk before me as a test of your what? Obedience. That you know me. That you, you see I'm kind and gracious and loving. Do you believe that? Well, let's go walk together. Let's see if you really believe that. And they didn't. They failed. But God in His mercy made the water drinkable anyway. And then He said, come on now. Your relationship with me is going to be wonderful, but there's, it'll also be a test. If you really understand my grace. And when you don't, I'm going to put things in your life so that you but come to understand my grace. And this is good for you. It's a test. And I'm not going to, you just, if you just, if you would just, verse 26, if you will just diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God, and just, just do what's right in his eyes. I mean, doing what's right in his eyes is a good thing. If you just give ear to his commandments and just keep his statutes, at least try. He says, I'll put none of those diseases that befell those who didn't know me in Egypt. And guess what I'm going to be to you? I'm going to be your doctor. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to be your healer. Not just physically, but spiritually. Everything about you is going to be fixed through me. In other words, he's saying, I'm putting you to the test. Now now test me. See if I don't follow through. God says, trust in me. Be my people. I will doctor all that ails you. The word translated healer comes from the root word meaning wellness or soundness, both physically and spiritually, emotionally. God is saying, just as I turn bitter water sweet, so too when you trust in me and delight in me, I will turn the bitter longings of your soul sweet. The question is, do you believe that? I mean, essentially that's what the gospel is saying. When Jesus says, come to me and find rest, is that not what the gospel is offering us? The problem is, do we we really believe that? My friends, the message of the gospel is the message to come and find God to be refreshing for your soul. It's not a a call to come be religious and do these rules so you can feel good about yourself. No, it's to come to, to try to obey God's rules so you see that you've still got broken sinfulness in your own heart and you need His grace daily. And guess what? He gives it to you. That's the gospel message. Remember when Jesus met that Samaritan woman in the heat of the day by the well? Jesus is alone by the well. His disciples had ran off to get some food. She comes to draw water. Jesus miraculously knows her story. Five times previously she was married. Five failed attempts to drink from the well of relationship success. Now she was living with the man and she didn't even try to marry guy number six. (laughs) Life had become so bitter that she got to the point where she isn't even trying to make appearances anymore. You know what that's like. She comes to the well during the heat of the day because she knew that no other women from her village would be there to look down on her. But Jesus opens up a dialogue with her. He says, give me a drink. And she replies, why on earth would you, would you, uh, ask a Samaritan woman like me for a drink of water? And Jesus answers, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. She's obviously still thinking in the physical realm when she says, well, this well is too deep, by the way. And where do you get this so-called living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus communicates that, that he isn't talking about physical water. The living water, which only he is able to give, is able to address that deep thirst in your soul for a man. You keep going back to the same well. Yeah, different man, but the same well. Instead, believe in me. See me as the one who can satisfy the deepest thirsts of your soul forever and ever. And when you do watch out, because it's going to become a, a spring of living water welling up in your life. My friends, that's what Christianity is. It's an offer from the God who created you to see that all the thirst that you experience can only be quenched by Christ, the spring of living water from heaven. For those of you here who have yet to trust in Christ, do you see how the human experience is, is mostly about having our thirst quenched by earthly sources? And, and how... So many of them really are quite bitter for our soul. I invite you to turn to Christ and receive Him as He offers Himself to you as living water for your soul. Trust in Him. For those here who do profess that you're Christians, examine the greatest thirst in your lives right now. See how you may be looking to earthly springs to satisfy. And if you have a hard time Doing that examination, can't quite figure out. Well, just try to figure out what you've been grumbling about lately. <laughs> or, or what is it that, that makes you anxious? If you go down that path, you'll probably find some unhealthy thirst. Things that you haven't turned over and trusted to Christ. Examine how you thirst and give your thirst to Christ that He may satisfy them. So we've seen that the Christian life is a pilgrimage in which we're tested. Now let's look to the rest. The Christian life is a pilgrimage in which we are tested so that we may rest in the promises of God. You know, as good as life is in the present as God's children, only in the age to come will your thirst for wholeness be satisfied. And that is what God has promised his people a day when all is made right and that he comes to dwell with his people in perfection. And so we are to pilgrimage on this earth with, with that day in mind. This is how God's people have always lived. They've always lived with eyes towards the horizon to what God has promised them. We see this, many of you are familiar with this, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The writer says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
My friends, the, the, the cloud of witnesses in this context, they're, they're the saints who've lived before. And they've lived as pilgrims who have longed for the new heavens and the new earth. How did they endure? Their eyes were fixed on God's promises on the horizon. The faithful people of God, listen, have always lived this way. Always lived this way. How about you? God has promised to one day deliver His people into the place of perfection and eternal joy. That's what verse 27 is about. Look at it. Let's read it. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Listen. If Mara was a place of testing, then Elam was the place of blessing. Mara represents life on earth here and now. Elam represents the perfection of heaven on earth that is yet to come. How do we know this? Like this earthly pilgrimage upon Mara, Mara was just a stopping point. The water was bitter, but God made it sweet. This is what all Christians are to experience here and now. This world is broken and sorrow-filled. Yes, there's good things that we can experience, good things from God in which we, re- we rejoice and we give thanks. But as Mara became just kind of an okay place to get water, it was no place to make camp for good. God took them someplace special. He took them to Elim. We read that there's 12 springs of water and 70 palm streams, palm trees there. That is where they camped. And it was perfect. See, why 12 springs and not 11 or 15 or 50? I mean, there's 1.5 million people. Maybe a thousand springs. And why 70 palm trees? That's really not, I think we fighting to get under those trees, right? It's my turn. Okay. You guys, your family's been there for way too long now. Okay. Why 70 palm trees and not 8 or 325? Because in Hebrew numerology, these numbers, 12 and 70, they, 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 they symbolize perfection. Any good Hebrew reading this text would say, God has taken them to Elam, which is the perfect place. But there is no perfect place on earth yet. Ah, so it must point to something else. God is showing his people, that Mara place stinks, but I can heal you and and deal with you there, but I've got a better place to take you. Remember back on this, when you're gone for 40 years in that wilderness, that I'm the God who takes you to Elam. And so you can trust me to bring you to the promised land. And the promised land itself, what, just points to the age to come perfection on earth. So too for us, we have a joy set before us that's far greater than Elam, far greater than the promised land. And guess what? It's even far greater than the Hamptons, even on a perfect sunny day. So maybe live as those who look to the horizon at God's promises. And may our looking cause us to rest in God who alone is able to make bitter, sweet. 
This morning we've seen that the Christian life is a pilgrimage where we're tested so that we will rest in God's promises. If God can miraculously satisfy the physical thirst of his people, then we can trust him to satisfy our spiritual thirst as well. Our lives as God's dearly loved children are lives of pilgrimage. So, so let us get out of our heads that, that, that the goal of our lives now as Christians is to make this world nice and comfy for us. To make a home here. We do that, don't we? My friends, we live in Mara, not Elim. Yes, God makes our lives sweet by His grace, but may we never settle for Mara. There's an Elam to come, a place where no more sorrow, no more sin, a place where God resurrects you in Christ, in perfect body and soul, in heaven on earth. Then and only then will that thirst that you have be fully satisfied. That's what we long for. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, let us be reminded that God's grace is upon us for all the grumbling and complaining that still comes from our parched lips. There's grace. Remember that God made the bitter water sweet. And he did this for grumblers and complainers like you and me. That's what this table reminds us of. That does not excuse our grumbling. But it does remind us of the character of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, isn't it true? Jesus' whole life was a test. And he passed. Jesus lived as you and I should have lived, and he died in our place. Think this through. Jesus is in some ways the log that God threw from heaven into this Mara bitter world that we live in so that your life may be redeemed and become sweet through Christ. And think this through also. Jesus willingly thirsted in our place. On the cross, Jesus, the one who said, He who drinks of the water I give will never thirst again, thirsted. Jesus hung on the cross, and as he did, his mouth was completely dried out. Before he yielded up his life for you, he cried out with these words. He said, I thirst. I thirst. As he bore your sin, he also bore your thirst. Consider this truth. The eternal divine Son of God entered into this bitter mar of a world and thirsted for you in order that he might become living water for you. Talk about love and grace and mercy and sacrifice. Jesus thirsted in your place so that all your thirst may now be satisfied in him. God in Christ makes bitter sweet. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, every time we open up your scriptures, um, you are glorious to our hearts and minds. We thank you that this story is in scripture because we are complainers. Even as we become more and more mature, we still complain. We don't trust you. We try to find our hopes in this world and try to satisfy our thirsts in things other than you. Thank you that you, that you bring grace to us.
But while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. May we be transformed here and now. May we not be the same people who came into here and how we love you and how we live for you. May we be pilgrims for your glory until Christ returns. Amen.